Welcome, thank you so much for being here on this Trinity Sunday. Uh, this is the last of the three great feasts which conclude Eastertide, uh, the season after Easter, and next Sunday we'll begin the great season of Ordinary Time. And it's usually this time of year in which we all say, Alleluia, for Ordinary Time. Uh, we're all very excited for Ordinary Time, are we not? Um, also, as, as a part of commemorating this, these three feasts, the first is Ascension, and then Pentecost, and then Trinity Sunday, uh, here at Restoration, we pray through the Kenyan liturgy. So if the words are a little bit unfamiliar to you, that's why. Uh, we do this as a sign of our global unity with Christians across, across the globe. So, like I said, this is Trinity Sunday, the Sunday in which we celebrate that God has revealed himself to us out of his abundant grace and love for us. He has revealed himself to us more fully as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, if you want to know what some of the early Christians, the way in which they articulated the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, there's a creed called the Athanasian Creed that was, I, I believe, uh, written in the 8th century. Uh, it is printed in the back of our prayer books, actually. Uh, you can look at it now or later if you want. I guess it kind of depends uh, how this sermon goes. Um, it, I'm glad you laughed. That was good. <laughs> um, but it's on page 769 in that red prayer book in front of you. I'm not going to be preaching through it, just kind of as a reference for you. Um, but its lines are very lyrical. Uh, they're very repetitive. And if you're just kind of reading this, it can feel a bit, a bit stale or something, you know. Um, but scholars believe that it was actually composed for liturgical worship, that it would have been sent to, uh, set a lot to, along to music. Uh, so maybe that can be, some of uh, those of you who are musicians, uh, maybe that can be your challenge this season after Trinity is to set the Athanasian Creed to music, and we can sing it together as a church next year. So take that. Um, <laughs> take that as a, as, a, as a charge to you. So it is true that the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible. And some would probably argue that it's more of this irrelevant idea. It has no practical meaning to us. But I would say that that is a huge misunderstanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. Trinitarian thought just saturates the Holy Scriptures, both the Old and the New Testament. In fact, when Jesus came and, and uh, after the resurrection and he opened up the eyes of the disciples and, and taught to them um, uh, the, the true meaning of the Old Testament, he would show them where uh, he was and how he was um, prophesied through throughout the Old Testament. Or throughout the Old Testament. So I believe that the more that you seek to understand the Trinity, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, the more you will know the heart of God, the more you'll know what, what motivates God, uh, what, what, what moves God. You'll learn more also about his love for you, that it's out of his abundant love uh, as the triune God in which he created this world and in which he redeems the world. As one scholar says, the doctrine of the Trinity is no impractical speculation about God, but instead, and listen to this, instead is nothing other than a shorter version of the passion narrative of Christ himself. That is, to understand the doctrine of the Trinity is to understand why Jesus came, what he did upon the cross, and how he now fills us, the church, with his very presence. You see, the doctrine of the Trinity is a doctrine of love. It's a doctrine of God's love for us. 
And this is why the Christian God is so remarkably different, right? Because in some religions, God, if, if it's a monotheistic, monotheistic religion, it sort of portrays God as this all-powerful, completely other, completely separate entity from creation. And if there's any moment in which he becomes aware of what we are doing here on earth, he gets really mad and irate with us. And so that religion is usually ways of trying to muster up from humanity some sort of way of appeasing this angry God. Or some religions sort of portray God as this um, absolutely everywhere sort of force or, or presence, and it's actually not possible to have any sort of personal relationship with this God force or whatever. It seems as if everything in this world is trying to convince you that God is either distant and unre- unrelatable or he's also everywhere and unrelatable. But the Bible says that God is love. God is love. And if you think about it, love always needs to have an object of its love. There's always a giver and a receiver. There's always a subject and an object. Love is a relationship, is it not? You can't be alone and claim to be loving. And the doctrine of the Trinity teaches us that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is engaged in this eternal dance, this eternal celebration, this eternal feast. Uh, you've probably heard me talk uh, before about how in the Eastern church, they, when they uh, draw icons of, or write icons of the Trinity, it's often at a table in which they're sharing food with one another, inviting you to come and participate with them. It's out of his abundant love in which God created this world, as we say in our liturgy. It's out of his abundant love in which he rescues, redeems, and restores his people. So given that it's Trinity Sunday, I thought I'd kind of go for a scripture trifecta and try to touch on each of the three passages from this morning. But I hope in all of this, you see that God is love. It's baked into his very being. And I'm actually, I'm going to, you're getting a little bit of a different ser- sermon than first service. I'm going to, let's touch on Isaiah first. They had it last. We're going to do it first this time. So we'll start with Isaiah. Now, it might not seem immediately obvious why uh, those who put together our Sunday scripture schedule, our lectionary, as we call it, why they would include this reading from Isaiah as a part of the readings for Trinity Sunday. But here we see that God is the God of creation and covenant. Here we have this beautiful description of our creator God who creates the heavens and the earth and who could weigh his various acts and deeds, who could measure his Holy Spirit. But we also see that he is the author of justice and truth and of wisdom. The might of nations can't compare to the might of God. He is the God of all creation. But also we read that he's the God of covenant He doesn't forget the promises that he's made to his people. In fact, when I say that God is covenant, what I mean by that is that he he faithfully keeps his promises. Now, remember when Isaiah was written. It was written to this dispersed people, this this despairing people, this people who uh, have been oppressed by outside nations, scattered across the known world, and they feel like they've been forgotten by God. In fact, it says in the readings, They're saying, our way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. They feel hidden and unseen from the Lord. And what God is doing in this passage in Isaiah is he's saying, 
No, I haven't forgotten you. You are my people. You belong to me. Remember who I am. He says, you will not grow weary in the midst of this tribulation right now. There will be a day in which I will renew your strength. You might feel far away. You might feel pressed into the depths of the earth, but you will mount up on wings like eagles. You will run and not grow weak. You will walk and not fall down. What God is saying to his dispersed, scattered people in this moment is that I have not forgotten you. I will come and I will rescue you. So the question that we have to ask ourselves as we read a passage like this in the Old Testament is how would God do that? How would God rescue his people? What would it look like if the Lord of creation came down and rescued his people? Not just physical bondage and oppression, but from the enslaving oppression of sin itself. What would it look like if God then, in this mighty, redemptive, rescuing deed, actually placed his Holy Spirit in people and gave them a supernatural endurance to be victorious over all of these dark, divisive forces in the world? What would that look like? Let's turn now to Matthew. To Matthew. So here we see the resurrected Christ. After the cross, after the all the evils uh, of the cross, after the victory of his resurrection, and he appears to the 11 apostles, symbolizing the church, commissioning them. And he says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And then he says, and behold, I will be with you always until the end of the age. So no doubt, knowing that this is Trinity Sunday, as you heard that passage read to you today, you thought, oh, this is included because when Jesus tells the church to baptize and make disciples, there's this Trinitarian statement that's included in that. That must be why this is here. And and I would say, yes, that is why this is a part of this. So Bishop N.T. Wright says that if Jesus didn't have this Trinitarian statement in this passage, in this particular command that Jesus gives the church, that the church would then have to kind of write in the margin some sort of Trinitarian statement to make sense of this because without it, it's quite confusing. Jesus says that all authority in, all, in both created realms have been given to him in heaven and on earth. What does that mean? Where does this authority come from? Who gives Jesus that kind of authority? Holy cow, what is that relationship like? between the one who gives the authority and the one who's received the authority. But Jesus also says that he is Emmanuel, which in Matthew is a pretty common theme here, that Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus says, I will be with you even to the end of the age. So again, what in the world does that mean? How is it that a human being who's ascended into heaven is actually with his church, with his people, as they go and, and carry out his mission across the entire globe? How can one person be with his disciples? So you can kind of see where I'm going with this. You need the doctrine of the Trinity to make sense of passages like this. Jesus receives all authority from the Father in heaven who gives it upon his obedient Son, Jesus gives his presence, that is, the spirit that's within him, he he pours that out upon all of his people, the church. We see unity and distinction 
among the Godhead here in this, in this um, passage. Jesus is united and distinguished from God the Father, who is the source of all life and power. But on the other hand, he's also united and yet distinguished from God the Spirit, who is the sustainer of all life and who fills us now. And do you see the motion that's in this? Do you see how this is kind of a dance, a, a giving and receiving among the persons of the Trinity? There's activity that's at work here. And then we are incorporated into this. There's mission, there's, there's sending out that's a part of this. We're invited to participate in the work of God himself. Wow. So through this, we see more clearly the triune God of love, prophesied by the Old Testament, foretold in all the promises of old, but coming and, and dwelling with us, looking at us face to face, eye to eye. So here we see God the Father sends his healing love into the world, and then he sends his followers out, equipped with that healing love by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that brings us to 2 Corinthians. So 2 Corinthians is, is the Apostle Paul's letter to a dysfunctional church, which none of us know anything about dysfunctional churches. And this is the way in which he concludes his letter. He concludes it with this Trinitarian blessing. He says, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, we could supply God the Father in there, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, these aren't just cliche, trite words that Paul is including here because we like hearing series of threes and things like that. No, it's not just a, a, an add-on, a trite sort of afterthought here. If we had more time today, we could spend a lot of time talking about the church in Corinth and what was going on there and the, the infighting that was going on there. We could do a study on the way in which Paul um, pastored and related to this church. Because if we did that, we would know that this Trinitarian blessing that he concludes with is, is a summary of his life, the way in which it's a summary of the way in which he's been ministering to his congregation, and that it is a genuine prayer that he is blessing the, blessing the church with. It's a way in which he's answering the problems of the church with this Trinitarian blessing. So there's three parts to it, obviously. He prays for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to be upon them. This comes from his own personal experience. We talked a little bit about Paul last week, that Paul was a murderer. He murdered Christians themselves, but by the grace of Jesus Christ, his life was transformed. And he was actually equipped for mission, to minister to the church. But then secondly, he prays for them to experience the love of God the Father, and this is a love that has fueled and motivated his ministry, that's absolutely enveloped Paul in his work. He's learned how to live in the love of the Father in both good times and bad. He knows the ups and the downs, and he knows that nothing can separate him from the love of God. Well, finally, Paul celebrates the Holy Spirit, and he prays for the fellowship of the Holy Spirit to be at work among the people. The Holy Spirit is what draws uh, 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 people from every nation, every tribe, every language, every ethnicity that draws together people from various socioeconomic statuses. This is the Holy Spirit who, who creates these dynamic and diverse churches. The Holy Spirit also fills our lungs with the life of God himself, the life of God himself, that which animates Jesus, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives within us as an inheritance. The Holy Spirit heals our wounds, helps difficult churches recognize Christ in one another. How beautiful is that? The Holy Spirit 
restores. Oh, I wish we had more time to dive into, first, or into 2 Corinthians and the way in which Paul uses the word restores there. But Paul sees the problems of this church and he desires for them to be taken up into the life and into the light of the triune God, into the love of the triune God. And do you see how verse 14, how it, how it ends there? Because again, this blessing isn't just happy thoughts. He prays for the blessing of the triune God to be with the people. So there we hear it again. It's that Emmanuel promise, that God with us promise. Paul doesn't think this is just a doctrinal sort of teaching moment. No, he says God's presence is with us. This, this doctrine, this, this triune nature of God, God, who he is at his very being and his core actually means that we can be with him, that we can experience God himself. Again, N.T. Wright says the promise, this promise, this Emmanuel promise is guaranteed by the God with us person, Jesus, and it's renewed daily by the God with us spirit. How beautiful is that? Guaranteed by Jesus, renewed by the spirit. Praise the Lord. So this is the love of our triune God. And I love the way that our, our collect um, opened the service this morning in which it, we, we thanked God for his grace in revealing himself to us in these ways, that he is not distant and other, but he has drawn near to us. And we see that most clearly upon the cross. And he takes, when he takes our sinful nature upon himself, rupturing this relationship, distancing himself from God the Father, experiencing abandonment from God the Father, because that's what we as humanity actually deserve. But again, God the Father is loving. He loves his obedient son. And so he raised him up from death, declaring that he accepted the work of his son, bringing him into fellowship back with himself again, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, incorporating us into that, giving us the power of Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus Christ, the love of Jesus Christ. So may we not disregard this doctrine, but instead may we fall more in love with it and understand more deeply who God is, his abundant love for us, and the tremendous mission that he has called us to. Please pray with me. Lord God, you are beautiful and powerful. Lord, thank you for revealing yourself to us that you are the God of love. And out of your abundant love, you have created all things. And then you created us to enjoy this marvelous creation and to enjoy your very presence. And Lord, again, out of your abundant love, you created a way for us to come back to you even when we had rebelled against you. So thank you, Lord Jesus. Lord, may the knowledge of you increase here at this church. Lord, may we know you, may we experience you for our own sake and for our own healing and for our own restoration but also, Lord, for those who are in our lives who are far from you. We want them to know that you are the God of love. We ask all of this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.